audiences are so central to what we do and, and that is the main thing I've learned I've actually just come to the entire conclusion of my entire lockdown is that <laughs> my audiences are are crucial hello and welcome to also in pink the podcast all about lifestyle design how we live the clothes we choose and how we organize our space I'm your host, Alexandria Lawrence, a certified KonMari consultant and personal stylist. I'm here to guide you on your journey to live a happy, fulfilled life. Every Tuesday, you'll get new insight on what it means to live well, plus actionable tips. Redefine what's possible and create your ideal life. Our guest today is conductor and harpsichordist Stephen Devine. He loves to explore new sound worlds from early keyboards to 21st century Bach on synthesizers. Stephen has a gift for engaging with audiences and delighting one and all with his comedic charm and musical sparkle. In my alternate life as a musician, we've played together many times over the years throughout the UK and further afield. Stay tuned for some stories that are bound to make you laugh. Stephen, welcome. What a delight to have you on the show. And thank you so much for being here. Thank you so much for having me. It's a real pleasure. Real pleasure. Well, to give Westerners a bit of background, we've certainly taken part in a variety of musical experiences together over the years. I've worked with you as a keyboard player and conductor, and from early Mozart operas to Finchcock's musical museum recitals, and more recently, the English Haydn Festival in Bridge North. And in whatever context, it's always, of course, a pleasure to be on stage with you, Stephen. Oh, well, thank you. Likewise, <laughs> likewise. And I love that you dare to explore new worlds with your music making too, and have great versatility from early keyboards, harpsichord, forte piano to electronic music. I just like the sounds of things and experimenting and saying, oh, what does that do? And how does that change things? And I think that's why I could never quite just stick to just doing one thing. I, I sort of get drawn quickly somewhere else because I find something else that draws my ear. I think that's wonderful. And uh, it seems like comparatively few classically trained musicians maybe think in that way. So it's nice to diversify. But tell me more about Art of Moog, 21st century <laughs> Bach on synthesizers. What um, drew you into that world? I love the fact that this is always what people first see. They know me as a harpsichordist and then they sort of go, but you play synthesizers in this group. <laughs> well, it, it was a, a brilliant brainchild by a friend of mine, a uh, friend of ours, I think, Robin Bigwood. And he has been writing about hi-fi equipment and been ex playing around with electronic music and electronic synths for well, all his life, as well as being a very fine harpsichordist himself, which is probably how we know him best. And he'd had this idea, as always, conceived after about two pints of beer when it seems like an amazingly good idea, <laughs> that he had this idea with uh, Martin Feinstein of the Feinstein Ensemble that for their Bach weekend at the South Bank, what they should really do is have a crazy weekend and have all sorts of, of weird and wacky things. So we thought that it would be much more interesting for three classically trained harpsichordists who, for the want of a better word, specialise in that sort of repertoire, to play it in a completely new way on completely new instruments and see what comes out. And so we had a, a couple of sessions where Robin set up some basic equipment and some basic sounds. And we had an absolute ball and we really, with a, a deadline of an actual concert to do, we put together a programme. Robin did most of the arrangements. 
the only thing that I, I can see in Robin is that, of course, every new concert we get to do, he has to go and buy more equipment because, you know, it is addictive, that sort of thing. And But he's incredible and he's done a brilliant job. And it's not it's not tacky. It's not playing Bach badly on synthesizers. It's a completely new sound world. And it allows us to sort of explore some of these incredibly complex works in totally different ways. And it's a lot of fun. It's a huge amount of fun. And, and I think that comes across in the in the presentation so yeah it's liberating well it absolutely comes across it's so much fun and really musically engaging as well so i think the best of both worlds i think that's the thing that when we did it for the first time we thought it was going to be a bit of a novelty you know three harpsichordists plugging themselves in (laughs) and actually we realized that we got an awful lot of musical expression we went quite far into the music probably further than I think we'd expected at all and it also wasn't us trying to modify our harpsichord interpretations it became a new thing and that's been fascinating how it's modified when we started we only used kind of one sound per piece now we're using big banks of sounds it's become a a bigger thing as well so you know the skill set's been incredibly diversified as we've gone along of course and like anything the more you learn about it the more you delve into a new world the more you get out of it too expression wise <laughs> completely we, we are actually talking about starting to do a bit of composing for ourselves as well just as it all started the sort of big festivals started getting involved the, the sort of rock festivals which is is one of the funniest things i've ever heard of in my life the thought of playing a, a, an electronics tent in a muddy field somewhere i think could be the sort of high point of my entire existence and it certainly makes everybody who I tell just burst out laughing the thought of me doing this and the thought of these three three nerdy harpsichordists getting their feet dirty (laughs) well I don't know what it says about me but I can completely imagine it (laughs) I absolutely see you out there I take that as a huge compliment (laughs) (laughs) now for a flavor of the unique sound world that is the art of Moog This is a highlight from Bach's Chorale Prelude in F minor, BWV 639. wonderful quote on the Moog website for your group, looking more like a craftwork gig than a classical concert and with boundary crossing audience appeal. This is live synth Bach with completely new levels of insight and unsurpassed standards of performance. My goodness, I hadn't read that. <laughs> it's good. We've had some fantastic reviews from a real cross-section of people as well. And I think the thing I've enjoyed most is people who come along not expecting anything just you know oh it sounds a bit nerdy and they've they've just sort of really got it we didn't quite know where we were pitching it were we classical musicians or were we going to be trying to be a bit cool and trendy we can't be cool and trendy because we're not you know i'm a mid-40s harpsichordist i've enjoyed the fact that we've sort of discovered what we do 
and how we're going to do it so we don't feel stupid or feel we're trying to be something we're not. We, we just get out there and play. And even stupid things like, what, what are we going to wear for this? And how are we going to stand and how are we going to light it? They were things, well, we could do this. And said, well, yeah, but that's a bit fake, isn't it? We're not that sort of thing. And that makes it, having that dialogue was extremely important, I think. And it, it took a little while. Yes, absolutely. So how would you describe your Moog style then? It's really simple. It involves very sort of cool black t-shirts and jeans and a very simple clean colored wash for the whole thing we've actually invested in a, a bit of lighting for ourselves as well because we kind of know now what we want it to look like that sort of thing it just comes from experience as you said so it's a clean thing but it's a kind of good looking thing i think that was the, we, we spent a lot of time even worrying about how the cables are going to be gathered because there's an awful lot of wiring in something like that as you can imagine yeah it just goes to show how much thought goes into anything like this and branding is huge for anyone i mean that's an important step in performance or should be anyway i absolutely agree and i think this is what kate my partner and i have 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 learned as well is that branding doesn't necessarily have to be sitting down saying okay what what we're going to look like but it can be what do we do how do we want to do it so it's become a package of kind of us being true to ourselves but in a way that gives the listener the viewer some form of recognition that's been a good lesson i mean we've been working on that for a number of years kate and i but we've particularly spent time over lockdown obviously really working out what it is we do and and how we do it speaking of lockdown you have uh, your own charming covid satires (laughs) that you've done together you and soprano kate simmons so tell me about the inspiration <laughs> for those. What did you do in lockdown and Boris has a roadmap? Yeah, well, that's another thing. They're get, becoming better known for that than I am for playing Golbo variations. Uh, that's great. I have no problems with it. Anyway. <laughs> Once lockdown has started, we, as creatives, I guess, suddenly found all our outputs completely stopped. And we were worried about, do you drop off the radar altogether if you don't have continuous output and it goes back to what you were saying about branding so we we also felt that actually does the audience as in the general listening public want another version of let's say music for a while or a bach harpsichord prelude and fugue from me recorded in your front room on slightly duff microphones with a with a slightly blurred camera (laughs) and we realized no no because and and then it's out there you have no control over it three years down the line when you look back on it and cringe you want to take it off and it's it's, there's nothing much you can do about it so we decided not to do lots of that sort of stuff but we suddenly realized that this would be quite fun to combine all these skills these rudimentary videoing skills that we got and sound recording skills, and using our front room as a studio, Kate set the music to my poem, and we basically recorded it. I mean, it was crazy, absolutely nuts. And it was just so refreshing to work on something new that neither of us really knew what was going to come out. And again, we only did it for the family Zoom originally. It was just a bit of fun. Eventually, we sort of hitched ourselves in and said, right, okay, we're going to put it online, see if people like it. If they don't, tough. That was the biggest stage of all, really, was deciding whether to put it out there or not. Oh, that's true, because doing something new like that, you really do put yourself out there in every way. So it takes some courage to just go for it and say, okay, publish. (laughs) Yeah, no idea whether people like it or not. Absolutely. And what would you say is the most challenging aspect of creating these new little dramas? Is it technical side or creating a story or... Hmm, that's interesting. I think the, the, the most 
technical side for us is now actually storyboarding, which we didn't do before. Actually, you know, what are we going to put in the background here? Where are we cutting to this? And actually, so it's the prep. We never used to do any of that. We used to throw it together. And of course, it would take us then a week to try and put it together afterwards. <laughs> go, oh, should we have done that? Should we just get the green screen out and record that tiny little bit one more? So it's the, the workflow, I think, is the thing that's the most challenging aspect i mean software is is astonishing isn't it what it what it does for you you know with minimal skills you can create an entire virtual world in video um, and i find that still mind-blowing and being able to edit sound with very little training we've been involved in recordings for many years so we know what the process is but actually to get your hands dirty and find this in some cases free software that you can just download and get going and create professional quality things is incredible it really is and as you say, after dealing with that technical hurdle, it then does really come down to storytelling, doesn't it? And preparation, making sure you're creating something that's in line with your goals. I think that's true. I, th I think what's really interested me now is with a bit more skill, uh, I can now look at a, a flow of a, a video and go, do you know, if we cut away here, we will create this feeling and this ambience. And I think when I, I'm now looking at other people's work, looking at the professionals and seeing, okay, well, that's what marks the professional out from the amateur me, is that they understand, to use your words, the storytelling aspect of going in closer sooner and coming away. They understand the actual process of pictures and music together creating an extra layer of narrative, if that makes sense. Yes, absolutely. And can you imagine translating these storytelling skills to playing concerts then, performing generally? What an interesting question. Do you know, in some ways, the way Kate and I have always worked, I think we've always kind of done that anyway, because soprano and harpsichord concerts or soprano and 40 piano concerts have the potential to be quite sort of limited in their scope and emotional range. So we've always tried to make it an interesting story about something. So in some ways we've always done that and that's translated into my own solo repertoire. We, we've got the potential to really take an audience on a journey uh, and audiences are so central to what we do. And, and that is the main thing I've learned. I've actually just come to the entire conclusion of my entire lockdown is that <laughs> my audiences are, are crucial. The first time back out last month with a, a live audience was overwhelming. And it made me realise that all these recorded concerts we've done and all that sort of thing, they're great and they're artistically fun and challenging and rewarding to a degree, but there's nothing like watching an audience respond and relaxing and listening to you and, and coming with you on that journey. That's absolutely true. And that level of engagement, though, I'm not sure you always see in classical music, that, that fine awareness of an audience when you're playing. I think when you study... You're almost taught to ignore audiences, like imagine them, you know, with <laughs> without any clothes on or just anything that makes you as a performer feel more comfortable. But I think ideally, the more you are able to engage with them in how you think about concerts and actually while you're performing, surely that's all for the better. Oh, completely. I mean, I, I couldn't agree more. It's, it, but then it's hard with Western art music, particularly there, there is a disjoint between say a Mahler symphony you've got an hour's worth of music that is designed to be listened to in absolute silence that's incredibly powerful as a work of art that almost you don't want people to applaud at the end you want them just to sort of absorb this amazing experience of hearing a live work of such enormous complexity involving so many musicians and yet on the other hand you've got that feeling that 
people need to respond to it that's why they're there so they can see other people responding to it and share the energy of, of all responding to it together and receiving the energy from the musicians and the musicians receive the energy from the people sat on the edge of their seats and so so for me I, I occasionally do want to go to a concert and sit there in absolute silence with my eyes shut uh, and I don't want anybody to disturb that or anything like that. On the other hand, I also then want to go and hear Maurizio Pellini come and tell, tell me about why he loves playing the piano and absolutely, you know, I'm there for you and you're there for me sort of thing. So it's almost its worst enemy, but it's almost, it's it, there's no solution to any of it. And I've done quite a few of sort of debates and, and online interviews over lockdown discussing things like applauding between movements and is digital art less valuable because of this? And, and actually, no, it's not. I mean, the difficulty for us is we look at our popular music cousins who are in a genre that is actually growing up as the medium so the medium can change all the time so you have bands that just record amazingly complex albums that are designed to be streamed in spotify because that's all they need to do you've got bands from 20 30 years ago who do an amazing live show because it's a live show so that's an absolute engagement with the audience it's out there it's for engagement with an audience whereas as i say you know marla's mid-period symphonies are almost the product of a, a sort of man wanting to just sit in a, in a room and think about it and I, actually the more i look at beethoven when you get to the sort of fourth fifth sixth symphonies there is that element of course he was writing for the public he wanted the he wanted the adulation but he didn't really care what the audience thought because he knew that this was a very important statement he was making so there's this sort of passing frustration you see when the audience may not respond in the way that he wanted them to you know but he, he was self-confident enough to know that this was great stuff he was making and when do you think that changed that sort of audience engagement because historically speaking audiences were quite rowdy weren't they in early days they were yes yeah it's, it's a really good question the disjunct between the audience and the creators is it starts becoming a big thing in the romantic era just because of the nature of the beast and the nature of the modes of expression that's grossly oversimplified, but I, I do take your question on the nose because I think it's a really important question that, that things did change. They were absolutely about audience engagement and then they became not. And now, of course, we have this body of work that we can't redress and we've got to find a way of making that, bring that back into the realm. Whereas, of course, popular music is of the time. And, and I do see modern composers, contemporary composers, really sort of battling and saying, well, look, we are of this time. We want to engage with audiences or engage with technology or whatever it needs to be addressed i think certainly in terms of artistic engagement oh absolutely it does need to be addressed and i know the classical music world is accused of many things of perhaps being a little bit elite or stuffy even boring and i can completely understand how people might think this so do you think the classical music world needs to try harder to engage with new audiences always but I think the most important thing is just to, it's almost to wear the music lightly and say, look, this is our modes of expression. This is how we do it. And there isn't a right way. So I think it needs the whole industry to, to think about how we regard each other so that there is space for a festival hall piano recital. There's also a space to do something in a pub, you know, a, a piano recital. And but, but neither is wrong and neither is more valid than the other. And, and you know, I think you said, you know, about the telling the story through the concert. I think that is the best way of keeping an audience, if, if they feel safe there, that they're going to be taken 
almost by the hand through it and you can do anything you want you can you can laugh you can cry between movements you can applaud you can do anything we'll just take you through it we'll just give you a really nice evening of great music so that might be just talking from the stage it might be creating something beforehand i know that there's talk now about engaging in augmented reality so that people can hold up a phone uh, i've been part of a couple of trials hold up a phone it's an, an instrument in the concert and the phone will recognize who it's pointing at and look at it and either describe the instrument you know what's that funny instrument what's that funny clattery harpsichordy sound oh god it's the harpsichord you know um what's this piece what's going on in this piece at this point the uh, Mahler chamber orchestra tried something last year with mozart the mozart symphony with ipads and boxes and things you know can i point at this instrument now move it to the clarinet to see what happens here you know that that sort of thing is great because it, it opens up a world for somebody who, who may not have ever done anything like that before so yes i think there's lots of things i i'd say i'm not a big a big fan of completely sort of revitalizing you know we'll, we'll just give you a little bit of this and a little bit of that and see if you like it i mean there, there's room for that but that's not the way all concerts should go i think you know good art is good art let's present it in a way but even so i think good art can have a story behind it without cheapening it at all go cool, completely completely Imagine if you lived the life you really want. You know, your dream life. Have you ever taken time to picture what it would look like? I mean, what it would really look like? We're not talking about the life you feel you should have, but deep down, the life you secretly want. Your ideal life. Maybe you already have a vision. You wake up after a good night's sleep on the most comfortable mattress ever, with pillows that support your head just the way you like. You go to your organized closet and choose colorful, unique clothes that fit you and make you feel good. Then pad through a clean, warm, uncluttered home to the kitchen. Your refrigerator offers up the most delicious, healthy options for breakfast and you have a day of unstructured time stretching ahead of you to do with as you like. But... That's never going to happen, right? Wouldn't it be nice to take a step back, sweep aside all your worries, and imagine that's where I come in? I'm your host, Alexandria Lawrence, and I've developed an exclusive questionnaire for the Also in Pink community to help you create a vision of your ideal life. Simply join the Also in Pink email list and you'll get instant access to our Ideal Lifestyle Vision questionnaire. Go on then. Make a cup of your favorite tea or whatever floats your boat. Go to alsoinpink.com and click Start Now. Redefine what's possible and create your ideal life. I'm sure that every performer has stories of things that have not exactly gone according to plan during a concert. What would you say is your most embarrassing or memorable wayward moment during a performance? <laughs> well, you mentioned I used to work at the Finchcox Musical Museum, which was an astonishing place, as you know, and, and many happy memories for all of us. I was there from the age of 12. I used to go down as my summer job, and then when I left school and university it became my so every holiday I went there and then eventually I moved in there when I finished university I, I knew everything 
every nut and bolt of every panelling in this wonderful sort of slightly crumbling 18th century manor house. But the thing that I had to do as part of my job was demonstrate all the instruments every day, sometimes three times a day for various groups and private groups and individuals and things like that. When I was sort of 15 and 16, I finally got to a stage where I kind of, I knew it, it's fine, I could do it autopilot, I did, this is the harpsichord, this is the piano, this is a wonderful instrument and blah, blah, blah. And then when you sort of get to 18, 19, you realise you don't know that much and actually, you know, things start going spectacularly wrong that you notice because you start caring a lot more about what you're doing and you're because you're turning into a, an adult rather than a child. And so my most horrendous sort of learning experience, it's actually turned out quite well, was you probably remember the instrument that used to have drums and bells and cymbals. It used to be this wonderful grand piano. It looks a very frail sort of, it was made in 1815 and it had these very spindly little legs and, and, and all this beautiful brass work around the side and everything. And it was a perfect instrument for Schubert and things like that. But inside it, it had this whole battery of percussion effects. So you hit the pedal and the whole instrument sounded as though it exploded <laughs> with drums and bells and cymbals. And as the sort of climax to my tour, I used to, all the demonstrators, we used to sort of play Mozart's Rondo alla Turca, this wonderful sort of piece of music with a, a big sort of crash bang ending. Absolutely wonderful, you know, with the drums and the bells and the piano sounding as though it's about to fall apart and everything. It all gone terribly well and I started playing building up to the big climax everything hit the percussion pedal where the whole of the bottom of the piano fell off <laughs> all the pedal work and everything just crashed to the floor <laughs> so so they, they got the crash but only once and of course the entire piano stopped working so i had to do something which i've never been prepared for and i don't think anybody ever is which is that you had to stop but of course you were in the middle of your finale as the story is reaching a climax the audience is just sat there going okay now what so I found myself having to explain what I was doing whilst crawling underneath the piano, trying to screw the whole thing back together enough to actually, <laughs> you know, get this show finished. Then sort of limp over the finishing line with a few more crash bangs to make it work, whilst all the time giving the audience a really good show. Whilst also suddenly thinking, shoot, I've just broken the piano <laughs> and just destroyed this priceless 1815 piano. So that was the most sort of excruciating, oh my goodness, I have no idea what to do now. I mean, there's been countless times where I've once or twice at the Albert Hall when I've done the Christmas show and I've gone, ladies and gentlemen, please welcome. And nobody comes. And then you sit there going, well, that went well, didn't it, ladies and gentlemen? Let's try that one again. You know, I mean, with the Albert Hall one, it used to be in costume with wigs and tights and full 18th century costume. So I'd be there all mic'd up with this wiring running through this body, getting very hot under a very proper wig and full bottom wig and everything like that, trying to tell really bad jokes. And the wig would always have a life of its own. So if I, if I moved too much or got too vigorous <laughs> in my conducting, the, the wig would end up sort of sideways. Somebody from wardrobe would have to come on stage and not just move the wig, but sort out the wiring for my microphone, which is all over the place. So I, I've done lots and lots of those. So they're the embarrassing ones, yeah. But I mean, you know, plenty of really much more subtle ones where you started a piece and then realised you're either playing the wrong piece or you turn the page. I mean, this, the, you, you could come up with as many stories as me on this one. You turn the page and you realise that page is blank so yeah tons of those tons of those it's very true i think one of my most recent mishaps was the small chamber gig in some tiny venue and i thought i knew what the repeat scheme was but i obviously <laughs> didn't fully and it meant i had to sort of improvise a bit of a fugue which of course you know oh, no. you don't want to oh, hear no. a recording of that luckily no. it wasn't recorded <laughs> <laughs> oh i hate those they are awful yes yeah no definitely <laughs> 
I mean, that's why I like the performing thing in a way as well. You know, on a recording, you just stop and do it again and repair it or deal with it. But actually, in a concert, you engage with the audience and. I always remember somebody saying, oh, audiences love that sort of thing. And I said, well, they don't if they're embarrassed for you. But they do if you're sort of going, oh, well, that wasn't supposed to happen, was it? Now let's see what happens. You know, things have gone wrong. <laughs> That's lovely. And I've yeah. always been so impressed with your ability to do that with audiences too, <laughs> oh, just to sort of diffuse any awkwardness. It's that Finchcox thing, having had everything possible go wrong that can go wrong. And, you know, the other thing in Finchcox that used to happen all the time was I, I would turn round expecting to demonstrate this instrument to find it being walked out the door by two burly men in a brown coat that happened about <laughs> 10 times you know so, so we're now going to look at this instrument oh it's gone <laughs> you know well, nobody told me the instrument was being borrowed for that you know and the guys would just walk into my demonstration and just remove it so it's a yeah a great learning curve for that but but thank you i appreciate what you say it's something i actually bizarrely i quite enjoy is is that moment of okay let's get this right well, it sounds like the beginnings of a stand-up comedy career, Stephen. Oh dear, I'm not spontaneous <laughs> enough. And the only times I do tell jokes, uh, actually, uh, the Christmas show, I've 20 years I've done the Christmas show, I've been in serious trouble twice with people for telling jokes that weren't weren't that funny, but they managed to insult somebody. So, oh, you know, for somebody who only kind of does that sort of thing two or three times a year, that's a, a pretty high percentage rate. Not one that I want to repeat too much. Speaking of which, do you have a favourite musical joke you'd like to tell now? Oh, oh dear. Oh, do I have one? The one I really like is the, um, the, the guy who leaves his viola on the back seat of the car and leaves it unlocked and comes back and finds three other violas next to it. <laughs> so no, no, I don't have any musical jokes. I know, it's a great shame. It's a great shame. Otherwise, otherwise it's just... Can I tell my parrot joke? Is that all right? Please, please tell your parrot joke. So there's a... <laughs> This this man's looking for a birthday present for his wife and he goes into a pet shop and he sees that, that there's this parrot for £200 and he says, that's a very expensive parrot but it's great. So, oh, this parrot, it's amazing, this parrot. It's so good. It can sing any aria from any opera. You just name it and the bird can sing any aria. So, that's <laughs> incredible. Oh, I've got to have this parrot. My wife loves opera. It sounds wonderful. So, oh, but before you do that, I've got a parrot over here. It's £500. <gasps> But how can it be better than this £200 parrot? And he said, well, this parrot can sing complete operas, all the voices, everything. You name the opera, this parrot can sing all the opera. <laughs> Just incredible. It's brilliant. I mean, there's nothing he doesn't know. Well, so I've got five. Gets in his checkbook looking for his, yeah, £500. Yeah, I've got to have it. Oh, oh, hang on, though. There is this other parrot. He said, well, how can any parrot be better than that? And he said, well, uh, and he said, and, and, uh, he said it's very expensive though it's ten thousand pounds this parrot he said what no that's crazy how can you know how can it be more than the 500 pounds what, what can it possibly do he said what does this parrot do and this guy says well i've got no idea what this parrot can do but the other two parrots call it maestro <laughs> that was the punchline <laughs> that didn't go down too well did it <laughs> i just had a delayed reaction <laughs> slow slow burn yeah. that one yeah that that might not make the edit I don't think I've laughed that hard on a podcast episode yet, so <laughs> well done. <laughs> and what would you say that you love most about performance, about being in front of an audience? That, the audience. I would have sort of gone, oh yes, well, it's the moment of being in them and creating music live and things like that. But having this last month had three of the most profound musical experiences back with audiences, being moved to tears to walk out to and see people there and watch them. I hadn't realised how much I missed it. I, I, of course I knew I missed it because I'm that sort of animal, but I really, really, 
I was very profoundly moved to see an audience again, even a socially distanced one, you know, and just watching people who just, they needed it. They needed the interaction of, of seeing live music again. I feel like, you know, we could have played anything and consequently it made us play better and concentrate harder and just, yeah, this is why we do it. And I think it's the audience, it's, it's that immediate feedback. Even if there's no response, you know, even if they don't clap very much because they're a bit inhibited, which is interesting with small socially distanced audiences feel like sort of, there's only eight of us in this room now, you know. <laughs> and I always find it fascinating that even if they're not very loud, you can still feel that intensity of people listening, of being really in engaged in what you're doing. Completely. You're so right. That is exactly it. Yeah. The feeling of the audience rather than the sound of the audience. There is that feeling that something invisible is connecting you and it's absolutely intangible. But when you've got the audience or they've got you, well, it's the best drug in the world, as, as I think you would respond to as well, having seen you perform those gorgeous viola moments in those Haydn symphonies, for example. You know, I've seen that look on everybody's face, but yours particularly, Aww. you know, that's that's what it is. And I think it's, uh, the more I analyse it, I, I don't know the answer, but I, I think the more I analyse it, I wonder whether it is down to this fact that you prepare for something, you create something, and the performance marks a boundary that it's kind of come to an end you can put it back in the box ready to bring out again for another thing but with, with recording you sort of there's no end to it because then you've got all the sort of editing and, and sort of stuff and then you're never quite sure when to let go with recordings I've personally found you know is this good enough how good is it and you try and get a second pair of ears in to sort of mediate it's a very unsatisfying process whereas with a performance it's done there's nothing you can do about it was it good yeah was it bad probably but it doesn't matter on to the next thing Whereas there doesn't seem to be that with recording. Yes, I think that makes a lot of sense. We all need editing in our lives, whether we do it ourselves or <laughs> or someone else helps us. <laughs> I'd like that printed. I'd like that. I think that's it. We all need editing in our lives. <laughs> yes, whether it's a wardrobe edit, we could go into yes, that. Yeah. Yes, yes, yes. <laughs> oh, it's true. I just love the idea of your slogan. We all need editing sometimes. <laughs> Excellent. And... Do you have a daily habit or a ritual that brings you joy? I have a very nice coffee machine and I still think I make better coffee than anybody else. So I, I allow myself a coffee at home and that's my grounding thing. We've really enjoyed walking during lockdown. We decided that we had to not vegetate. And as you know, we live in a beautiful part of the country, so we're very lucky we're in a village, but there are fields all around us. So I've tried to keep that going actually ever since, even when I'm away, is to walk a good amount every day just to keep the body moving so uh, yeah that's become an important part of my ritual bizarrely i never thought that would <laughs> yeah that that and a nice coffee when i'm at home and yeah oh that sounds lovely i'm just uh, imagining some sort of entrepreneurial venture now that involves coffee <laughs> and songwriting <laughs> and uh, <laughs> performance and out of doors i don't know comedy so many possibilities Stephen. <laughs> i'd quite like to go back to what i was doing before in some ways <laughs> <laughs> and do you have a top tip for living well something my listeners can take away with them and apply in their own lives <laughs> um top tip if, if it's worth doing then let's just do it absolutely as well as we can even if it feels th there's nobody there to see it if it's worth doing just do it well and then the personal satisfaction gained and the skill set that you might develop along the way so I like coffee. I really like good coffee. I don't like bad coffee. So I, you know, I tend not to buy it on the street when I'm out because I 
don't know it's going to be any good and I'd rather not spend three pounds on something that I don't particularly like. So it was worth spending time here just to get it just so, so I could really enjoy something like this. So yeah, take time over things. If they're worth doing it, they're really worth doing well. I love that. If they're worth doing, they're worth doing well. That's a great tip. And now for a taste of Bach's well-tempered clavier, book one, prelude number 15 in G major, BWV 860, played on the harpsichord by Stephen Devine. Hope you enjoyed this little musical interlude before we carry on with the final round of quickfire questions. So we've reached the final round. So we have some quick fire questions to end the show. So first of all, what's your most treasured possession? And no judgment, of course. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, my life and, and who shares it are my most treasured possessions. Materially, I've got some very, very special keyboard instruments that mean an awful lot to me that I chose, commissioned and, and had them made for me. So, so you know, my couple of my harpsichords are very, very important to me, and I wouldn't really want to sell them, even if I had financial necessity to do so, because they feel so much part of me. But actually, I'm afraid it's 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 a bit soppy, but it's the person I live with. Oh, that's lovely. <laughs> and what's your favourite article of clothing in your current wardrobe, or it could be an accessory as well? Oh. We had an amazing tour with the Orchestra of the Age of Enlightenment to Southeast Asia two years ago, 2018. And in Vietnam, I went and had a concert shirt made to play keyboards in, something that was lightweight, silk, really comfortable and fitted me properly and, and just moved with me. And it's, uh, it's just lovely. It feels, when I put it on, I feel I'm going to do a concert, you know. Oh, a special feeling. So you have the, yeah, the memory of the action as well that comes with it. I know, I do have a colleague who talks about putting on his concert pants, but you know, this, this is... <laughs> and that's the British sense of the word pants, isn't it? Yes. Yeah, I'm afraid so. <laughs> Excellent, yes. <laughs> that maybe should get edited out too. Might keep that one in, we'll see. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Anybody can guess the friend, send me a check. <laughs> and where do you go to get inspired? Out, out and about. This village is lovely. So it's a mixture of people who've lived here all their lives, who work the land, who go to London to commute. So everybody you meet here is is, is different and, and interesting. There's a field kind of over there where you can just get out and mooch around and lots of country walks and some really fabulous sort of, you know, hedgerow foraging possibilities and all that sort of thing, which I've kind of been learning, particularly during lockdown. So actually I'm finding this place is inspiring me more and more because it's where I can come to clear my head of lots of conflicting thoughts and just focus sounds good 
And what's one book or resource you'd recommend for everyone? It's a very personal thing, but my father's mother, my grandma, who incidentally was called Grace Divine, isn't that one of the great names of all times? Her favourite book, which I have her copy of, she gave to me when I was a teenager, is John Steinbeck's Travels with Charlie. It's a autobiographical and he's basically coming up to retirement and he decides that he doesn't really know about America and he's writing about it and all the different pockets of factions and things. Basically, he commissions a, a camper truck and Charlie is the name of his large French poodle. And so he goes travelling with this big dog. And it's an astonishing book. It's, it, it, for me, it was life-changing and still is. I still go back to it. it it's just a, a very special record of human interactions by a very special observer of such things and I think it's an absolutely incredible book. It's a go-to book for me. Excellent and here's a very KonMari question for you. What are you grateful for? I'm the luckiest man alive. I always have been. You know I'm very blessed with friends and family and I do something I love that I couldn't live without and people seem to like me doing it for them as it were so you know lucky me and finally what do you love most about life just everything everything that changes and it's nice that there's always a balance you know that that this didn't go terribly well today but it might go better tomorrow and this might change and this might change and this but this is great you know this is all that the fact there's no stasis Well, Stephen, thank you so much. It's been a great pleasure speaking with you today about all things music and performance. And thank you. It's been a lot of fun. It's been my absolute pleasure and it's lovely to see you again. Oh, thank you so much. Hope you enjoyed that chat with conductor and harpsichordist Stephen Devine. Be sure to check out the delightful assortment of videos on the official page for this episode. See the show notes for details. So, here are some key takeaways from our conversation. Whatever content you create, storytelling is bound to be at the heart of it. Always take your audience with you on a journey. Engage with your audience, and like Stephen, you can diffuse even the most awkward moments with a twinkle and a few well-chosen words. And yes, you can always develop new skills. Many performers and people who've had their livelihood transformed by the pandemic have needed to innovate. Whether you want to develop video and audio editing skills like Stephen to create content for fun, Or maybe you're looking to develop an entirely new career path. There are so many possibilities. So get out there and start exploring. That's our show then. Thank you so much for listening. I'm Alexandria and this is Also in Pink, the podcast all about lifestyle design. If you enjoyed the show, please subscribe to Also in Pink wherever you get your podcasts. And the absolute best way to show your support is to write a review on Apple Podcasts or iTunes. This really helps more than anything to promote the show. And of course, tell all your friends. Thank you so much for your support. Until next time, have a wonderful week. Redefine what's possible and create your ideal life.